Our world today seems wild and out of control. It seems almost impossible for ordinary people to make wise decisions that can keep them safe and healthy. Welcome to Words from the Wildwood. I am your host, Richard Stidham, and I hope to give you today a better understanding of what is really happening in the world around you and how you can hear God's voice over the noise of the world around us. Let's go today to our new segment. Welcome back, everyone. Let's get started today. We are back in the book of Revelation. We are doing a study of the entire book. As we said before, we began with the idea that no matter what happens in the world, you and I are okay. Even though the world seems to be falling apart, nations seem to be collapsing, diseases seem to be coming back on us that we thought we had overcome. We are just fine. And I know what you're thinking. How can we say that? How can we say we are fine when there's so much devastation going on in the world? Very simple. Our God is the Almighty. Now, we looked in the very opening verses of Revelation chapter 1. He says, I am the Almighty. The word is Pantocrator or Pantocrator. That means the one who possesses all the power, not some of the power of the world, not some things he can do, some things he can't. God is almighty. There is nothing he cannot do. There is no miracle he cannot perform if it fits his will. So that is why we don't have to worry. Everything that comes to us comes through the loving embrace of Jesus Christ and is done with the permission of God almighty. That may, be, that may seem like a very uncomfortable statement at times, but it's not. Not only are we in the presence of Almighty God, we have a very unique place in His kingdom. As we saw last week, we, the people of Jesus Christ, are a kingdom of priests. Now, in the, old, in the days of ancient Israel, only the priest could go into the high place, the holy place. And only the high priest himself could go into the holy of holies. And that was to be in the very presence of God Almighty, in front of the Ark of the Covenant, in front of the Bema Seat, before the Shekinah of God Almighty. Only those people could stand before him. But now he has given that privilege to us. He's called us a kingdom of priests. The purpose of the priest was to mediate between God and man. Well, now the perfect high priest has come, so we don't need to mediate for their sin. We simply need to introduce them to the one who can cure them of their sin problem. So we get to walk before God day and night, and that is an incredible privilege. John is about to meet Jesus in a very different way. He walked with Jesus on the earth. He, he walked beside the Sea of Galilee with him. He was in the storm with him. He knew him as a friend, as an intimate friend that he could lean back on, recline on when they were at the dinner table, and he would just be able to talk to him and pour out his heart to him, and he would see him as we see each other on a day-to-day -day basis. But now he will see Jesus as he's never seen him. Remember, John saw Jesus in the resurrected body. He saw him after he was back from the dead. And that must have been incredible. But here he's going to see him in a way that he's never seen him before. He's going to see him as God Almighty, as the one who is the El Shaddai, as the one who is the All-Powerful. And Jesus is coming back to usher in his kingdom. And he's come to bring John a message, a message that we can all repeat as we hail the conquering son. Now, in the first century, they had this thing they called the soul invictus. That literally means the unbeatable son, as in the son above, S-U-N. 
Many of the gods of the Romans would bear this title, the unconquerable sun, the sole invictus, and they would use that as a symbol of something so powerful it could not be overcome. But this sole invictus that we serve is not an S-U-N, but an S-O-N, the Son of God himself. Now, Jesus has come to speak to John and to give John a mission. That mission has three parts, and that's what we're going to look at today. We are in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. We're going to see these three parts of this mission that God is going to send John on. The first thing that has to happen is he's going to tell John, John, I'm going to give you a message, and I want you to give that message to the troops. Military leaders throughout history have sent word to their troops, have sent letters to their church, messages to their church. They've spoken before assemblies of people to inspire them and strengthen them in the midst of combat, in the midst of all that was tough and strugglesome. So Jesus is now going to send a message to the troops. Remember, we're looking around 93 AD. We're looking at a time when all but one of the apostles is dead. Everyone except John has died. He's the last one. He's on the Isle of Patmos. He is a prisoner in exile from the Roman Empire. He is alone, and he is meant to stay there to his death. So he must have forsaken all hope of ever being in the world and in the fight again. But in the midst of that loneliness that isolation, God is going to tell him, I got a job for you to do, and I'm going to make sure you get it done. Revelation 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus Christ, was on the isle called Patmos because of God's word and the testimony about Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a loud voice behind me saying, like a trumpet, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now let's step back just a second and see what's happening. John was legendary throughout the Christian community. Everybody knew who he was, but he begins by saying, I am your brother and your partner in these three things. These three events are things that all Christians share in common. If you meet believers from around the world, if you go somewhere to other countries and you meet other Christians, you will find these similar stories in all of their experiences. One, we all experience tribulation. Every believer in every country around the world has experienced some kind of tribulation. They've been looked down on. They've been thought mad or crazy or old-fashioned. They've been accused of not thinking with their brain, but thinking with their heart or some old-fashioned, outdated sense of reality. Uh, You find scientists often just say horrendous things about Christians, thinking that we are all stupid or brainless or, or, or gullible or unwilling to look at scientific evidence. And I can tell you, when you look at the scientific evidence, it really does show you that the Bible is 100% accurate, 100% trustworthy. So we all have in common that sense of being in tribulation. In America today, to be an outspoken Christian, to stand up for Christian values, will make you a target. But there's a second thing that we share in common in this message he sends to the troops that is the work of the kingdom. What is the work of the kingdom, you say? Spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. Going right back to the book of Acts, we are going to all the world, preaching the gospel, 
making disciples, baptizing people in the name of Jesus so that they too can be bearers of the light of Jesus Christ. We're going to get to that phrase in just a few minutes. But we all have this work of the kingdom, discipling people, raising them up, sharing with them the gospel, and then when God births them into the kingdom, we help to raise them. That's our purpose as older brothers and sisters in Christ. But there's a third thing here, and it says that we are blessed with the endurance of the saints. In the first century, Christians had lost everything. They had been kicked out of their families. They had had their businesses taken away. Many had lost their marriages because when they came to Christ, their partner would leave them and and go a different direction to avoid persecution, to avoid being kicked out of the synagogues, uh, things like that. But you know what? There's an endurance that comes. There's a toughness that comes when you know who Jesus Christ is. When you know what you believe and you know that you believe it so much, you can put up with the sneers, with the comments, with the jokes. You can put up with some of the overt... um, Persecution that happens in many countries and is happening more and more in the United States of America. What is the endurance of the saint? The knowledge that we are doing this not for ourselves, not to get ahead, not to make more money, not to become more popular, but we are doing it because it is the right and true thing that God has called us to do. Quite a task, and uh, we bear a lot of uh, things in common with those who went before us. Consider also Mark 13, 32 through 37. Now concerning that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, except the Father. Watch and be alert, for you do not know when the time is coming. It is like a man on a journey who left his house and gave authority to his slaves. Give each one his work and commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. Therefore be alert, since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or at the crowing of the rooster, or early in the morning. Otherwise, he might come suddenly and find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to everyone, be alert. This had been many years since the Christian movement had begun with the resurrection of Jesus, with Pentecost, with the spreading of the gospel after that great day. And uh, people had died in the belief that Jesus was going to come back. In their day, in their hour, they were going to see his face. Uh, They had passed away. And now people were starting to wonder, is Jesus ever going to come back? And that was only after uh, 50 years or so. So John is left alone. He probably has begun to forsake hope. He knows who Jesus is. He knows what he's doing is right. But still, it can wear on a saint after a while to simply have no rest and no peace for all those things that are going on. So we know that we have to be alert because we don't know what day Jesus is coming. Think about this. John was on the Isle of Punishment, the Isle of Patmos, the Isle of Isolation, and he is there to die because he poses a risk to the Roman Empire. That's why he's been put there. Interestingly enough, very shortly after this revelation, he will be released by the act of an emperor who only served two years in office. But he releases him just long enough for him to return home to pen the words of the revelation, and then he too will die and join the saints in glory. So it's a very interesting thing that we look at this in Mark and kind of go, you know, you don't know when Jesus is coming. He didn't know Jesus would come to him that day in that form, in that way, but it happened and he was ready to receive it when it did. Think of it this way. We don't know where we are in the history of the world. You very well may be what Ezekiel calls the watchman on the wall. 
You are the one who sees the world changing. You see things happening and you go, my goodness, this doesn't look good. This isn't the way it's supposed to be, but it is the way it's supposed to be. Beloved, at the end of all things, this is what the world is supposed to look like. And what is our job? We are the watchmen on the wall. We are those who stand up and speak. Now, the Bible says that the watchman would watch throughout the night. If he saw a danger coming, he would sound the alarm and he would rouse the people. They would come together and they would go out in force and they would defend the city. The watchman had done his job. He had warned them. They had gathered together. They had defended themselves. And he said, if the watchman does not sound the warning and the city is taken, the blood of those who perish is on the hands of the watchman. But if the watchman calls out the alarm, if he calls people to arms, if he calls them to action and they don't respond, then the blood is not on the hands of the watchman. And as I've said for many years in ministry, my goal, leaving the pulpit every single Sunday, is that there be no blood on my hands. There be no person who is not warned. There's no person that I haven't given that chance to after I've spoken. And I think for all of us as believers, it would be a wonderful thing if we could say, there's no blood on my hands. I've told everyone that I know, and I've explained it to them, and now the decision rests with them. Paul put it this way. He said, I am the one who plants the seed, Apollos waters the seed, but it's the Holy Spirit who reaps the harvest. The Holy Spirit births people into the kingdom. Now, there's also a, a special meaning behind this. If you look at Colossians 4.16, Colossians 4.16 says this, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the churches of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read their letter, from, read the letter from the Laodiceans. You see, Paul was sending out these letters, but they were not exclusively to one group of people. They were not just to one group of souls. They were to all of those who cling to Jesus Christ. So they says, you read this to everybody. Read this letter to everyone so they know. And then you read the one that the Laodiceans have. You got swap letters. And so you can gain more insight and gain more wisdom. Interestingly enough, of the churches that are read, of the seven churches, the church at Laodicea is the last one mentioned. And we'll be talking about them in the future. Okay, so it says, I've got a message for my troops and go tell them. But the second thing that happens here is the message itself. Your king is coming. Whenever uh, troops were in the field, when they were, they were far from their main camps back behind the lines, uh, they would just get used to a certain way of life or a certain way of doing things. But when the king, the commander, or the head of the army was going to come, they would come and they would clean the roads. They would clear the roads of boulders. They would make it so that their wagons could transport these very important people comfortably with, with as much comfort as possible. And basically what he says is this, hey, world, guess what? You've been waiting all this time. Your king is coming. Revelation 1, 12. I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a long robe with a gold sash wrapped around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes were like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters." He had seven stars in his right hand, a sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at noonday. 
This must have been an awesome and terrible sight for John to see. He remembered the Jesus who had walked beside the Sea of Galilee. He remembered the Jesus who entered the upper room after the resurrection. This was nothing like that Jesus. Now remember, the second word into the book is, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the apocalypsis. Remember that the word apocalypsis means to see clearly or to see more clearly or to have a clear vision. This was the vision of Jesus after he had ascended back to his father. This was not the shepherd with the lamb on his shoulder. This was a warrior dressed for righteous judgment. The very fact that he had on a long white robe with a gold sash on his chest, that is the, that's the garments of the high priest, the highest representative of people to their God. So he comes dressed as the high priest, the one who mediates, the one who issues forth the, the words of life. So he's come dressed as, as this high priest, but he's also come dressed as a warrior who's coming to judge. The very fact that his feet are like fine bronze, that they are a symbol of the, the heated sacrifices uh, that, that stood before the uh, temple. And basically, they are indicative of judgment. The fact that his face is white and shining and bright is uh, definitely a terrifying thing. But it also shows that we have before us now a conquering Messiah. Jesus was the shepherd. He is also the Messiah, and he has come back to judge. He's dressed for it. So now, where do we get this idea of judgment? From Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. He says this, As I kept watching, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair then the hair of his head was like whitest wool. His throne was a flaming fire, its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing, coming out of it from his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was convened and the books were opened. What are these books? We see them later in the book of Revelation as the books of judgment, the books of the acts of men, and also the book of life, which holds the list of all of the citizens of heaven, all of those who have put their faith in Christ. This is from the book of Daniel. This is something that every Jew would have known. Every Jew would know this is judgment day. This is when the Holy of Holies, the Ancient of Days, when Yahweh Almighty will come to judge the living and the dead. And that's very important. Because when Jesus comes, he is not, as we said, he is not the gentle shepherd. He is this judge with these books convened and his judgments are final and they are righteous. So basically, John must have been horrified to see this side of Jesus, the side of Jesus he had never seen on earth, but now he sees it revealed to him in this apocalypsis. The third thing I want you to see is this. Yes, here is a message for my people. Yes, your king is coming. But here's the important thing for people who are suffering. And he is victorious. He is victorious. Revelation 1, 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He was terrified. He almost passed out. He laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. Here is a very powerful image straight out of the book of Daniel. We were in chapter 7. We're still in 7, but a little bit further down. Consider these, and you will understand exactly what John is trying to tell people. Daniel 
chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Now, that's how Jesus always referred to himself, the son of man. He is God, but he is also the son of man, so he can be that bridge, that connection. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. In his kingdom, that one shall not be destroyed. Think about that. Here is this promise from the book of Daniel, looking for this conquering, all-powerful, all-ruling Messiah. And here it is, it's Jesus. He knew it in his head, but now he saw it in a way he had never seen before. It was so powerful for him. Do we have that image of Jesus today? Do we cling to the shepherd Jesus, the cradling children Jesus, uh, the helping the blind and the deaf and the lame Jesus? Or do we have this Jesus, this conquering Messiah Jesus, this Jesus of power, of authority, I mean, flames coming from the throne. This is an amazing picture of who our God is. And if people in the world understood that they're not expecting a shepherd who's going to come along and hold them by the hand and say, oh, it's okay. It's okay that you didn't believe. It's okay that you turned away from me. It's okay that you did it your own way. I'm going to forgive you anyways. Well, you got another thing coming. This is the Jesus who's coming back. And this is the Jesus who has all of that authority in his very hand. In fact, Revelation 1.19, Therefore, write that you have seen what is and what will take place after this. The secret of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels. Also, you can insert the word messengers. They're the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches themselves. Now, remember, he's writing this letter um, in, in the very first point. He's writing it to seven churches, which are in Asia Minor. We covered that a little bit last week. These are seven Roman postal districts, seven centers of information where information can be sent out. Much like uh, we just read uh, a little bit earlier. You know, here, you're getting this letter from me. Now, make sure you send it around. Make sure everybody gets to read it. That's why you have these seven principal cities, these seven principal churches, which have it as their responsibility through their seven messengers. Uh, many people believe these were the elders of the ancient churches. The elders were in charge of saying, hey, here's the word of God. Now take this word and go out with it. They were the earthly voice, the, the, the booming authority. They were the priests of their day. And so you remember that that's so important because as pastors, our job is to tell you, here's the word of God. Now get on it. Get out there and do something with it. But above that, there's also these seven lampstands. Consider this very carefully. The lampstands are critical here. They're very critical. Matthew 5, 14 through 16 says this, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, a lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I've told you before, and I will always tell you this, the church is not the light. The church is not the light. Jesus Christ is the light. The Holy Spirit within every believer is the light. 
The church is a lampstand, and we put the light foremost in the church so that the so that the light can inform all of those who come in. It can touch all of those who come in, and it shines on everyone who comes in. It shines on a community. There used to be a time when on a Sunday morning, you would hear the bells of the church ring, and everybody would stop what they were doing, and they would head to worship because that church was the, the center, the hub of the community, and that's where people went when they wanted to worship and they wanted to turn their attention toward the things of heaven. Now, remember, a lampstand is powerful. A lampstand is high. If you look at the drawings of the old uh, holy place and the temple, Solomon's temple, these menorah were huge. They were very tall, but on top of every menorah was a simple oil lamp. Oil was filled in the lamps and the wick was lit. And so long as oil stayed in the lamp, the lights went on. In fact, that's what the whole celebration of Hanukkah is about. They were rededicating the temple after it had been defiled. And they said, oh, we only have enough oil here for one day, for one day to light these lights in the, uh, in the, in the holy place. But you know what? Through an act of God, through a miracle of the Almighty, that oil was sufficient for eight days. And that's how God is. When you think you've got no more strength, when you think you are worn out, when you think you are beat, that you've only got one more day left in you, God can make eight days stretch out of one day's oil. But that's so important. Consider this parable from the book of Matthew, and you'll understand it a little bit better. Matthew 25, 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. And when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry. If you've ever heard of the midnight cry, this is it. At midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. The job of those bridesmaids was to go out to the bridegroom, to trim their lamps, shed light, and to escort him to his bride. That was the bridesmaid's job, to escort the groom to her. It says, here's the groom, come out to meet him. Then all of those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. They, they turned the wick up so that it was more light. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him to the celebration. And that's just it. They went to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I don't know you. Watch therefore, for you do not know the day or the hour. Think about that. They thought, oh, my, my oil will be enough to last until the bridegroom comes. But the bridegroom, the bridegroom has been delayed for 2,000 years. For some people, it's, they don't have enough oil for one day or one week. And they're depending on Sunday to Sunday to keep them alive. Or they're depending on Easter to Christmas, Christmas to Easter to give them enough of the Holy Spirit to keep that thing moving. Now, if you are a believer, you need a daily infusion of oil. You need a daily infusion of the Holy Spirit, of God's move, movement in your life. And that is so important. You can't just go 
for weeks or months without a reinfusion of God's Spirit. Are you going to lose your salvation? No. Are you going to be left out when the end comes? No. The example is perfect for exactly what it is. They were not ready to receive the bridegroom when he came. The question is, are you ready? If Jesus came today to call home all of those who are waiting for him, if he said, now is the hour, come to me all of those who are my children, would you be ready to go? Would you be willing to get up and leave behind everything you have in this world and to go to your Savior? Because many people know Jesus in their head, but they have no relation with him in their heart. So I tell you, this warning right here that we are getting in the book of Revelation is a very powerful one. Is there oil in your lamp? Is there a light shining in you? Because he's going to be talking to the seven churches, or rather he's going to be talking to the seven kinds of believers that are existing in the world of his day and the world of our day. Seven types of believers with seven different types of situations. Yes, there were seven actual churches. Yes, there were seven actual pastors of those churches. But this is more than that. This is apocalyptic literature. That means there's a lot of symbols and a lot of signs and things that you have to kind of look for. But if you just look right at it, you'll see what it's trying to say to you. It's trying to say that there's different kinds of people out there in our churches, in our Bible studies. And some of them have oil in their lamp because when they were saved, it was filled. And as they pray and as they see God, it stays filled, overflowing. Instead of like a fountain of living water overflowing, we are a lamp of, of oil overflowing. And, and the oil just keeps pouring in because God keeps adding it to us. But if you've never had your lamp filled, if you've never received Jesus Christ, then this message won't make any sense to you. It will not help you in any way, but it may force you to look at the fact, do I have a relationship with this Jesus Christ? John almost passed out seeing Jesus in his glory. What will we be like when we behold the King of Heaven when he calls for those who believe? That's the question, and we'll begin to answer those questions with Revelation 2 and 3 next week. Have a good night. Thank you for joining us today on Words from the Wildwood. We are a listener-supported program presented without commercial interruption. If you have enjoyed this program and want to support our outreach, please send any gifts to Richard Stidham, P.O. Box 1321, Baytown, Texas 77521. Thank you for listening today. God bless, and we will see you again in the Wildwood.